If you've been around B2B marketing for a while, you've probably heard all kinds of things about what's possible, what's not, what works, what doesn't. And a lot of these are just statements with no context or reason. Things like cold email marketing doesn't work. On today's episode, Mark and I are gonna go through some of the biggest B2B marketing myths that we've come across in our career and either debunk them or talk about why they might be accurate. Demand Gen U is officially in session. Let's do it. All right, Mark, so uh, we're going to take a, I don't know, maybe it's a little slightly different approach today. Um, not one specific topic, but we're going to hit on a bunch of different topics around um, myths. So uh, myths in B2B marketing. And I know when I was starting- There's to, a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. well, and the funny thing is when we first started talking about it and you're like, hey, um, which one do you want to do? And I was like, this one, I was thinking, oh man. This is going to be hard to prep for. Like, I got to think about these things. But then actually when I sat down, they just, it was like easy. It was like, oh, wait, there are actually a lot of myths. I had to kind of dig though, because like a lot of these we've just known have been myths for so long. So in my mind, it's like, I don't think of it as a myth, but like, I think there's still marketers out there that would consider some of these things, you know, myths. So they don't really know, haven't experienced it, that kind of thing. So made it easier. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's basically like a soapbox episode where we're encouraging each other to get on each other's soapboxes and whatnot. So we've kind of been waiting for this episode for a while now. So I'm excited. Yep. Yep. Cool. Okay. So we've got a big list. We won't get through it all. Um, We may do a separate, separate episode in a couple of months on this too, or maybe bring somebody else in to talk about these, but uh, let's start with, let's start with an easy one. Um, The myth, B2B marketing needs to be formal and stuffy because we're selling high-priced products to high-ranking employees. All right. So I, it happens, right? So like it happens. um, So I don't know if it's a myth. Like, so like, I think a lot of people do that, you know? So like, but does it have to be that way? I think, you know, Um, that's what we're really talking about. And I think, no, no, definitely not. Yeah, for me, it's one of those things that I feel like people do, myself included, prior to metadata because this is the way it's always been done and that's the only way that you know how to do these things. So why would you do it any differently? And like I'll credit a lot of how I look at this myth to Dave Gerhart and the way that he was marketing tripped in the early days. It really just depends on who your audience is at the end of the day. And is your audience formal and stuffy if they are? great, then market formal and stuffy. But for us, let's use metadata as the example. We're marketing to marketers, usually at startups and high growth startups. And yes, we're moving up market. And do we need to button it up a little bit? Sure. But it really just depends on who they are at the end of the day and what they respond well to. We know that if we continue to move up market and as we get to 100 million in ARR, will we have to become more enterprise-y? Sure. Will it suck a little life out of me? Also sure. But it doesn't always need to be formal and stuffy just because that's the way that you've done it before. Yeah. And, you know, um, I'm a little older than you are, as we all know. So I've been around a little bit longer. I do think, like, this was way more a thing, you know, 15 years ago, for sure, Um I mean, I was still wearing collared shirts, you know, and stuff to work, you know, at, at oh, that point. We haven't, we haven't talked about flannel Jason yet. Here it <laughs> no. is. Yeah. This is even before, this is pre-flannel. Like this is even stuffier than a flannel, um, Jason. And, uh, and it was, I remember it was just like, especially like Microsoft, you know, um, trying to Heard remember of some of my jobs. Yeah. Like, uh, where it was stuffy, um, 
even Getty Images, which sounds weird, but like that's kind of an older school business with a lot of big, big, big customers like CNN and sh you know what I mean? And like, um, I just remember thinking, is this like, if I were, well, actually it made me think, well, who are these buyers? You know what I mean? Like, are these just like the most ridiculously like conservative, you know, like stuffy. So it made me think like, who are these buyers, you know, first of all, but then it was like, does it really, it has to like, this is what works best, you know, like it's, but if you, if you put yourself in it, you, it, you can talk yourself into it. You're like, well, God, I'm selling a hundred thousand dollar thing. That's a lot of money. So like, I got to be serious. And there's, I think a point to that, but where I like to think that there's a opening is that like witty intelligence, you know, and like what we try to build our really, our brand around, which is like, as long as you're really super smart, you can take these little, you know, you can do these little like fun, little like cheeky things because at the end of the day, they're still grounded in like, okay, they're, they're intelligent. So if they're doing this, huh? Um, I don't know. You can take some liberties that way. Yeah. And I think the other thing for me is that it really just comes down to how is your, like, let's say your, your top three competitors, the, the top three to five list, how are they all doing marketing? And it's not to say that, you know, you need to go copy exactly what they're doing or watch them religiously to see how they're talking about themselves. But if they're all talking overly formal and stuffy, like, why not Zach? That just gives you an opportunity to stick out and do something that sounds and reads different because that's the exact approach that we're taking here. And that's what people tell us, you know, it, why it lands so well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think, you know, I started to come around on this probably at Tableau where I was at a big company and I was a buyer and I was buying big things. And then I'm like, well, here I am. I'm like, definitely not formal and stuffy. You know, I, well, at least I just, I don't want to think of myself that way. It's like, so like, these are the buyers, me, you know, it's like, so we can be, you know, we can be fun. I want to have fun. I want to be entertained with marketing. Like that's what catches my eye, even when I'm buying a big ticket thing. So, yeah, I mean, um, so I, 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 and I just don't, I, you know, I just, I'm tired of getting bored by the same things all the time. Um, yeah. So take some clues from, I guess a little, some clues from B2C a little bit, like we're always talking it. about. All right, cool. Let's check it. Let's pick another one here. Um, oh, I like this one. Um, brand doesn't really matter because in B2B, the best product always wins. So do you want me to start with this one? Because this is something that I feel like I've, you know, I've you, fought, <laughs> I've fought yeah. so long to get you on this train and you're like the conductor on this train at this point, uh, which is awesome because <laughs> you were not that way when I first started. So I think similar to that first myth that we debunked, brand is more important than, uh, than ever in B2B. And it wasn't that way, you know, two years ago or five years ago or even 10 years ago. And now that gets your foot in the door or your sales team's feet in the door when they're trying to have conversations with your buyers. And if there is a brand that your buyers are already attracted to or feel like they have a relationship with, you oftentimes can have a slightly, you know, <laughs> inferior product, if you will, and still yes. win out because they already know, like, and trust you. Yep. For example, you know, DG always talks about 
the product that Drift had in the early days and how did it compare to what Intercom had at that point in time? Intercom probably had a better product, mm -hmm. but everybody saw everything that Drift was doing and myself included, I didn't even consider Intercom because I knew that I was going to go with Drift. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This one, like you said, uh, I had to be a convert on this because I came from the marketing ops side. So like I came to this thing thinking, you know, we could win with good math skills, right? It's like, we just need to have good math skills. We'll figure it out what works, what doesn't, you know, ads, blah, 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 like tweak this. Tw no, like, um, no, I, and I just, it's, it's, it was just such an interesting luxury for me to be able to see it from the beginning. You know, it was like, we had no brand when I first started, like zero brand. Um, and, and even when it was just me, it was still kind of like, you know, I, I was playing with it. You know, I was like, I think, you know, I was like, oh, I am playing with it a little bit. I'm, you know, trying to figure this out. I kind of had an idea of what I wanted it to feel like, but I didn't know how to describe it or I didn't understand the importance. But then, man, when we started doing things and getting recognition and um, just having the sales reps tell us things like, oh, outbounding is so much more easy and fun here because they'll take, you know, they'll take my call. They actually are interested, you know, in talking to me. They mentioned, you know, you, they mentioned me, they mentioned the podcast um, and just all the comments that we get. It was like, wow, we could actually have a product that doesn't even work. <laughs> it's like, we almost could have, like, eh, let's not go that far, <laughs> but yes. But like, you start to, you start to wonder, honestly, and then you start to look back in time and you start to make some things start to make sense. You know, you're just like, oh, wow. Like there's some brands that had like crappy products, you know, but they were like a shining, a shining light. And I think honestly, sometimes a brand with a shitty product, but if you had that, you get more customers and you can actually build a better product, right? Cause you're like, um, I'm using my brand to try and get more people in here so that we can actually expand and build and get more funding and those kinds of things. And so like, I'm a full, full convert now, which is funny for me. Cause like, um, nobody had actually people that haven't worked with me in a while would actually like, who is this guy? You know, like <laughs> he used to, he okay? poo -poo, yeah. he used to poo poo on brand, you know, like, oh, brand, like brand, what is the brand? You know, like, geez. Um, and now I feel like an actual marketer, not just a mathematician, you know? Um, I think back to Clay Bentley, our, our VP of sales said this, I think it was, I think it was sometime in May at the leadership offsite that we had in Chicago. And I forget the exact context of the quote, but I'll never forget when he said this. He said, this time last year, if you were to ask our buyers if they had heard of metadata, I think he said one or maybe two out of 10 buyers would have said that they had heard about metadata. And as of May in 2022, a year later, he said it was up to like seven or eight. Yeah. And when you can do that, how the hell are you going to tell me that brand does not matter in B2B? Yeah. Because then you have people who are like, I don't even know what you guys do, which sometimes can be a problem, <laughs> but I want to talk to you guys because I see you everywhere. Like, yeah. yes, brand matters. And, you know, we don't have an inferior product, but it helps open up new doors. Yeah. And the brand, like it does. And hey, I should have known this because I was a buyer for so long, but like, I just didn't put it to words, but I was feeling it the whole time. But the brand itself is actually what builds the trust, you know, because it's, the brand is the culture too, you know, and the culture of the company and how they sell to you, how they market to you usually pervades, you know, the entire company. Um, 
And so I, I think it can be telling too of like what it'll be like to work with them. And um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah. It's for me, for somebody that's, you know, been so in the nerdery for so long, you know, just trying to figure things out, like uh, to come out of that and like, and be converted. I don't so, know if you're still out of it, but you've, you, 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 so, you've so seen late, the light, yeah. but so late in my career, you know, as a marketer. Um, but it's nice that that's happened. Cause like, there's no better way to convert than to experience it, you know? Um, and that's, I think, been one of the best things for me is just being here since the beginning and just seeing how this, and it's hard to see, honestly, from the internal part. We've, we've talked about that. People external kind of have to tell us how it's going. Cause like when you're in the middle of it and you're not seeing like it from a consumer's perspective, you're just hearing things and you, you know, you don't really know, like, you don't, you can't, it's hard to have a, a description, you know, in your, in your mind or a, a thought really about like, well, what, what does this look like to external people? And so, um, getting feedback from people helps. Sometimes it's hard to believe even over like, are you just blowing smoke up our asses or like, um, you're always skeptical I know. and then you hear it a couple more times from people outside of the, the metadata world and perfect example. When I was in San Francisco a few weeks back for that gold cast event, there were a few customers and non-customers, all B2B marketers who said, I don't think you realize how big of a buzz there is around the brand right now. And I then immediately went and slacked the rest of the marketing team and said, do not let this get to your head <laughs> because we cannot let that happen. Uh, but yeah, you, you kind of have to take a couple steps back before you can see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, uh, it's fun to experience it. Um, you want to pick one from the list? Yeah, let me pick one that I know is going to get you riled up. <laughs> I would say marketing technology will solve all your problems. That's a good one to pick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's 9,000 tools out there for you to choose from. You've got plenty. Um, and even when it was probably 1,000 tools, right, I think... As marketers, we tend to, I don't know, maybe it's not just marketers, but like we tend to try and take the, what's the fastest path to value? And what we have working against us is really good marketers and sellers, you know, that like make us believe and feel like, oh, I have to have this, this tool, you know, I've got to have this tool or um, maybe I'm set, having some pain. But what I think happens too often is marketers don't get their house in order first. So like if your house is all disarrayed and you bring, a, let's say your, your floor is covered in toys and shit and you bring a robot vacuum into your house and you set that thing loose, what's going to happen? It's going to run into shit. It's going to go all around. It's going to suck up things you want. You know, it's going to spit out things you don't want. So like it's the same thing with, with marketing, if your house is in an order and then you just slap technology on top of it, it's going to be all out there. It's going to be making the wrong decisions. It's going to be, it's not going to fix the problem that you have. And just too many of us, we're so busy. We either don't have experience fixing the problem that we're having. Um, and there's this like promise, if I just spend some money, the technology will solve it. And then I think what happens is, sure, that technology can help solve it, but it requires so much like, configuring, you know, and like testing and then reconfiguring and, you know, 
that you're hiring somebody to run the technology <laughs> instead of like, you know, having somebody just run it manually or I, you know, I don't know, but that's often what I see. I don't know. What do you think? So I think because I started out in consulting, this is how I see this myth. And if I did not start out, you know, my first, what was it? Four or five years in consulting, I probably wouldn't think this way, but it will solve all of your problems if you have a plan in place. And if you look at it from like a people process and technology perspective, I think when people buy MarTech and don't have any sense of plan in place, both from like what they need to do and how they're going to do it and who's going to do the work, that's when people just buy a bunch of MarTech and then three, six, nine, 12 months later, they haven't solved any of their problems and they've spent you know, five, six figures on MarTech and they're in the same exact position. So I think when you look at it for like, what do we actually need to solve for here? How are we going to solve it? Do we have the people to solve it? Yes, it can solve a lot of your problems. It'll make you more efficient at the end of the day. The same thing goes though, that you could do a lot of this work manually. It's going to take more time without the tech, but if you start with the tech first and then try to, yeah, frame everything up around the tech, then no, it's never going to solve your problems. You're going to get fired. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes we see like, you know, the last couple of years when we've had a really like booming growth economy, um, this is when a lot of tool explosion happens, you know, because like marketers have more budget, like, oh, I got a little bit of luxury here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let me slap that tool. I'm going to try this out. Um, Now, like as marketers are, some marketers are contracting some of their dollars this is where this is an area that will get focused attention. And so we've had, we already did an episode on this, but you know, the non must have technologies will start to get squeezed out, squeezing, squeezed out. Um, and, uh, we're making up yep. words. We're giving econ yep. lessons. This is an <laughs> unbelievable podcast. Cool. All right. Um, so don't, so, so I think the point there is technology is not, a silver bullet solution, usually ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, ever. Start with the plan, figure out the people and resources that you need, and then buy the tech. Don't buy the tech to figure out the plan and then hope that you have the right resources yeah. in place. Yeah. And I think the, the last thing that I want to add here, because I think it's an important point. Five years ago, I think, and I would say this to our sales team's faces, I think it was way easier to sling MarTech to B2B marketing buyers. And the reason why I say that is they hadn't really gotten burned yet by a lot of these purchasing decisions. But because many of these MarTech tools are promising anything and everything and oftentimes under-delivering significantly, it's made it that much harder for people to open up their checkbooks and say, you know what, I'm ready for this. Because we're we're skeptical yeah. at the end of the day. We're way more skeptical than we were five years ago. That's totally true. Um Totally true. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, every time it's like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on it's me. Exact, it's exactly <laughs> yeah. that. Um, how many of these am I going to try before I just like, fuck this, you know, like I'm just going to do it on my own or I'm going to build my own thing. That's very unique to my, you know, situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and then, yeah. And so the more MarTech platforms don't deliver value, the more we basically kind of self-fulfilling prophecy ourselves into getting buyers to not even want it anymore. So like, um, yeah, it's interesting. There's so many tools. I honestly still don't know how there's this many, like, uh, yeah, I just don't know. Like, um, I, probably ourselves, even like the smallest, smallest we are, we, we probably have a hundred, you know, even if we actually sat down to count, I mean, maybe it's not that many, but like, 
it, it's, I bet you it's not that far away from that because I saw some stat that was the average B2B marketing team uses, I want to say it was like somewhere in the range of like 70 to 90 tools. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, if you count all yep. the little medium size and big things. So I don't think you're yeah, that far yeah, off. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. All right. Let's keep you on the, let's keep you on the soapbox. <laughs> cool. We launched an entire campaign around this. So of course we don't think it's true. <laughs> you have to do ABM to be successful. Ah, uh, yeah. We- yeah. Um, yes. So I don't think, I don't know if this is still happening cause I'm not in the like enterprise world, but when I was, ABM was always this like topic of discussion. And I'm talking, you know, between five, you know, three, sorry, four to eight years ago, let's say. Um, and it was this like, ah, uh, you know, are we doing ABM? <laughs> you know, are we doing ABM? And the thing was like, people would ask it and nobody had an actual definition because like, there's really isn't a shared definition on it. Um, CMOs would hear about it, wouldn't know what it is, but then would like talk about it, you know, like, oh, are you guys, you know, the CMO groups, are you guys doing ABM? And none of them would actually know what it is, but like trying to, trying to like tease each other into like, who knows what this is, you know, like trying to figure out like, and then how do we do it? You know, what is it? And then how do we do it? Is it a complete departure? Um, and so a lot of marketing teams, they just, got told do ABM programs. We need to do, we need to be doing ABM programs. Okay. Aren't we already selling to accounts? Like I, I, like, what is going on here? You know? Um, but that said, even to, you know, like, yes, ABM is, is the way we sell to, is the way businesses sell to businesses. You know, I sell to accounts. I don't, you know, I sell to people at accounts, but it's the account that's buying it. And so I have an account based, you know, like marketing and selling motion, like we have for decades. Um, and so, but if we talk about like what most people think of ABM, right. It's like this, it's this concerted, you know, what's my TAM? What of that TAM can I, do I think I can, you know, hit with my product where I have a differentiation over my competitors? You know, you get all this down that creates my target account list Got you know, between 50 and 200 accounts in my target account list. Great. Now I'm going to put them through a very defined touch, high touch motion, you know, between three and six months to carry them all the way through awareness, consideration, interest, purchase. Um, so that's, I think, what most B2B folks think is ABM now. And if that's what it is, then no, not everybody needs to do ABM to be successful. In fact, I'd say we're not doing ABM right now and we're being, and we're very successful. Um, we, we will, you know, like, um, again, when I say we're doing ABM, I'm talking about you know, like that, that generally shared definition. Um, but no, like if your product isn't super expensive, if your PLG, especially low ticket monthly cost, you know, those kinds of things, like, man, you may never need to do ABM. You know, you may need to do ABM at some point when you're like the call map trying to sell, you know, like business subscriptions, you know what I mean? to like enterprise companies and stuff, but not when you're selling like that individual one to people. Um, and so, yeah, so no, definitely not. You know, you absolutely do not have to do ABM to be successful. And if your CMO thinks you do, maybe you do for your company. But um, but even if you do, then it should still be a mix. Like it shouldn't be 100% of what you do. Yeah, I think a few things. And one of these 
points came out of our, it was one of the sessions last year at Demand. And I think it was Hannah Jakover who said this. And it was really funny because I got her all riled up and she was riled up and it was hilarious. But she said, it's okay to not be doing <laughs> ABM. And I think for the longest time, that's funny. Yeah. you know, I, I rode this train prior to metadata because I was brainwashed by their companies. I thought that in order to do B2B marketing well, that I had to be doing yep. ABM and you don't. And I think the sooner that you realize that it's kind of uh, liberating almost because it's, you know, Hey, I thought that I was, you know, I was told yep. to do this. I had to be doing this. I thought I was doing a bad job if I wasn't yep. doing it you can still be really successful without doing ABM. And then I think the other point is what you had mentioned, ABM isn't for everybody. So depending on your, you know, your length of the sales cycle, the buying committee, how expensive your product or service is, like all of these different factors, if you run through that and you don't check, you know, a couple of different boxes, it straight up doesn't make sense for you to be doing ABM, no matter how hard you try to do it. So it's almost wasted time and effort and energy at that point and just know that it's fine to not be doing ABM and you're not doing a bad job if you aren't doing yeah, ABM. Exactly. Yeah. Um, next time your CMO asks you to do ABM, ask them how they would define ABM. Just curious what they would say. <laughs> we should actually do an episode on that. And then there was one last point on that that I just thought of. So I follow Jason Lenkin from Saster and he posts a lot of really good stuff. And one of the things that he had mentioned was, I think we might be past this point now, but very recently, even CEOs were hearing yeah, yeah. ABM. Oh, we got to be doing ABM. And then you have your CEO breathing <laughs> down your CMO or VP of marketing's neck saying, oh, I yeah. just heard this at some <laughs> VC lunch and we got to be doing ABM. So do it. And at that point, you really don't have a choice. So even, you know, it wasn't just the CMO or the marketing leader who was saying, let's do ABM because we have to. It was the most important person to the company and it's tough to tell yeah, them no. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I saw that happening too. Um, Good marketing. Good marketing ABM platforms. Good job. <laughs> All right. I got another good one, mostly because we are going through it right now. So we'll have an interesting perspective. You shouldn't try to create a category because it's very hard to do. Arguably the hardest thing to do in marketing. What do you think? Yeah. Um, we've been asking ourselves this a lot. Uh, yeah. Daily. And, you know, I think there... There are, um, there are reasons like contexts, reasons, scenarios where you have to, you know what I mean? It's like you either create a category or you die without one or at the very bottom of an existing one that you don't really even fit into that well. And so, but I think, I think what's, what happens with category creations, I think a lot of companies do it that don't have to do it because they're like, they see it as one of these hard things to do, you know, and they, they see like people that do create categories and if they do it right, they end up leading those and, you know, really succeeding and they want that. Um, and then they get about it for the wrong reasons. And so, so those folks, so then how do you know if you need to create a category? I don't know the answer to that, but from our experience, here's what kind of we went through or what we saw. Um, the first was how we, how Gil built the platform. He was a marketer and he just decided like, oh, I'm having these challenges. I'm going to fix these challenges with software. He didn't see like, oh, he wasn't like a serial entrepreneur or software guy. Like, oh, look at this 
new up and coming category of ABM platforms. Let me get in that. Let me build one of those and let me lead that. It, he, never, he probably didn't even know what an ABM platform was at the time. I don't, he probably did. Maybe not. Um, and so, and then when he was. Can I, yeah. can I interrupt you? Cause I think I want to say one thing that helps yes. the story. I think he, whether he knew what an ABM platform was at the time or not, what he did realize was let's go ride the coattails of these companies who are about to fork over all of this money while I'm not ready to invest yes. in marketing. So in hindsight, that was a genius Absolutely. move. Yeah, no, Sorry, you're absolutely right. So yeah, just being in that category did get us some recognition or at least some interest like, huh, what's going on over there? Um, but then for us, the signs, there were a couple signs. We knew already, we, were, we knew, we were like, we don't, we don't do these things. You know, we don't do, we're not trying to build the things that the ABM platforms are trying to build. We're not trying to be everything to everybody. You know, we're not trying to like do all of these things. What are we trying to do? We're trying to laser focus in some area, in some specific areas. But the signs for us was a couple. First one was, wow, look at all of our customers that actually have our platform and a traditional ABM one. Um, and often it was six cents and it was like, wow, how are they using these together? You know, are they, do they understand? Like, you know, our customers actually understand more than the market does because they actually pay for both and they leverage both of them. So that was the first sign. It was like, okay, customers have a you know, specific use case between the two that actually work well together, which we tried to tell six cents, but they didn't want to listen. Um, and then the other one was we were competing with people. So like the plat, we were competing with people, which were usually agencies. Um, and that was a sign because it was like, oh, the platform's actually doing things that people still do today. And so when you have that, you're like, that's true category. Like if you're actually build a built software that literally is just doing something that humans used to do, that is true, a new category. Cause, um, you're literally like, you know, taking work off of somebody, not just, you know, a computer or whatever. And so that was the other sign. It was like, oh, wow. At one point we, the sales team said, told us you know what? It's not even the ABM platforms as, as much anymore. We're actually competing with agencies and status quo, you know? And so it's like, ah, ah, that was the other reason. Um, and so that was really the, the signs for, for us was like, okay, we can't sit the, sit in this and, and do well. We actually can't, you know, we participated in ABM wave last place, you know, I was like, ah, yes, this is even another sign, like why this makes sense for us to create a category. So a lot of different things, but you know, for us, the warning signs were pretty clear. I don't know what they would be for others, you know. I think the one that you missed, or at least the the big one for me, was how many times prospects came into calls in the, let's say, the 2020 to maybe 2021 days of metadata, expecting to see a demo of an ABM mm. platform, and I'm using air quotes, and they would say this, not us. By the end of the call, they'd say something to the extent of, this isn't what I was expecting, or this is way different than the other five demos that I've sat yeah. on. And we heard that a couple of times and we were thinking, okay, are they telling us that just because we want to hear that or what? But then it kept happening and it kept happening. And I think when we saw that many prospects say that, that's when the light bulb went on for me that, hey, no matter how hard creating a category is and the fact that, you know, if we don't have any experience creating a category, I think there's something there. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention was, I think it was David Cancel who said this on uh, Pep Laya's How to Win podcast, which uh, is a pretty badass podcast in the first place. I get a lot of my ideas from that podcast that then sound smart and original <laughs> to Jason, but um, we'll cut that part out. Uh, he said 
Drift probably spent somewhere in the range of five to $10 million creating oh. a category. And I think <laughs> oftentimes in the LinkedIn echo chamber, people are saying, you know, category this, category that. You got to create a category. What they don't realize is the amount of time and resources and cost at the end of the day that goes into that. And unless you have a decent amount of funding, oftentimes you do not have what it takes to know go all in and creating a new yeah category. we're starting to learn what that looks like um and yeah it's a it's a whole it can be a wholesale shift you know uh depending on like the category you choose and how maybe distant it might be from where you're currently at um so yeah it can be uh it can be a little scary and also you're going out with a big splash <laughs> if you get that big splash wrong you know it's like ah so yeah we're kind of learning about a lot of these things and kind of going through it like well not kind of we're literally going through it right now um yeah we should do an episode a year from now, you know, we'll still be doing this podcast of in hindsight, what were all the things that we fucked up <laughs> with category creation and where are we now? Uh, because, you know, we're pretty open about it. I've never created a category. You've never created a category. And, you know, we have some outside help being DG and an agency that we work with, but uh, unless you've really done it before, you don't really know what you're doing. You've there's only so many different podcasts and books that you can read and LinkedIn thought leaders that you can yeah. listen to, but, uh, you're creating something that doesn't exist yet. So of course it's going to make people yeah. feel uncomfortable. Yeah. I, um, it will be interesting to see what happens. You know, I think what we'll probably look at ourselves and say is like, we've, we've way overcomplicated that in the beginning. <laughs> that's my, that's my guess. This is what we'll probably um, be saying to ourselves, but yeah, we'll see. And then we'll also be saying like, wow, that was, that was challenging. <laughs> so i think we got time for one Maybe. last one before we got to go to a big cool. brand meeting uh so you pick the last nice. one all right let's there. see um let's do this one you need to ungate all your content so i i go back and forth on this i think we're pretty open about how we've ungated everything at metadata and do we truly truly know at the end of the day that that's the best approach probably not do we do it because if we were marketing to ourselves and would we want to have to fill out forms to download every single piece of thing and educate ourselves no we would hate doing that so i think that's driven a lot of why we ungate things but you'll see some of the companies who do like let's use gong for example everybody loves gong they're the poster SaaS child right now. They can do no wrong. They do a lot of great marketing. They still gate some of their stuff at the end of the day. So if there's really, really good high value content that you think is worth gating at the end of the day, go ahead and gate it. There's nothing stopping you. I think I just don't believe of gating, you know, guides and eBooks and all this fluffy stuff at the, the beginning of yeah. a buyer journey that really, you know, if I'm reading that, I'm so far away from being ready to talk to sales that it doesn't make sense to gate it and add me to some shitty sequence and have a SDR exactly. hammer me for it. Yeah. I like this question because like, it's kind of controversial, not controversial, contrarian. Cause usually people would say like, you need to gate all of your content. You know, like we're saying like, maybe is the myth, cause this is the more recent, you know, like, I don't know what to call it bandwagon, but like a lot of more no, yeah, I mean, like, it is hey, a your content. Yeah, like everybody's hey, hey, talking about content. it. Yeah. Um, and so I agree. Cause like I, just because we chose to do it and we think it's the right way, doesn't mean it's the, doesn't mean it's actually true or accurate. Um, 
Uh, and like Mark said, we don't know, like, could, could it work better if we gated our content? We don't, we'll never know because we don't negate it, you know, or maybe someday we'll try some pieces and, you know, but I think even then it's kind of like, well, what do you do with the people that, what do you do with the email addresses of the people that signed up for it? That's, I think, just as important part of the like gating or ungating your content as just the decision to do it or not. So like, what do you do with those people after they do fill out a form? Are you hammering them with sales messages or are you just like giving them something every once in a while and still letting them bring themselves in or draw themselves in? Um, so I think that's the other part of it. It's like, what do you do with that, that info? Well, and it's 2022. If I want to get in touch with a sales team from somewhere, like exactly. I know how to do it. Do you know how to do it? Everyone else yeah. knows how to do it. So why would you think that because I'm downloading some piece of content that that means that I'm ready yeah. to talk to sales? And then the other thing that I would mention is ungating it is actually the easy part. What is the difficult part is all the conversations that need to happen internally with your leadership team, with your CEO of what is going to change when the gates are, are unlocked because a lot changes. And if you are using, you know, leads and MQLs and, you know, all these leading indicators to show how much success you're driving, and then suddenly those all, you know, evaporate overnight, then you're in a really tough spot. And if you don't have those conversations ahead of time, your CEO and leadership team are good. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck is happening right now? Yeah. Like, don't, ha don't not have a plan. Yeah. Like, uh, cause all of a sudden, yeah, lead volume just dropped a, a ton. But then you're all, and then on that second side of your mouth, you're saying, but damn, pipeline's still the same. Because <laughs> those leads didn't really matter. They weren't really ready to buy. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So uh, I know we're at time here. Um, again, everyone, thanks for being supportive listeners to our podcast. Uh, if you haven't yet, give us a nice five-star review or whatever you can do. Subscribe, listen again. Uh, we really appreciate it. Have a good one, everybody. Go to the Apple store and subscribe all the iPads in the store, please. Awesome. Have a good one. All righty. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Demand Gen U. If you want to hear more, make sure to subscribe to get future episodes. You can also submit a specific topic you want us to talk about by DMing us on LinkedIn. If you like the show or want to share feedback, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep improving and get the word out to other marketers just like you. This podcast is brought to you by Metadata, the first demand generation platform that launches paid campaigns that self-optimize to revenue. If you're looking for a tool that makes it easier for you to build audiences, launch paid campaigns, and experiment at scale, you'll love Metadata. B2B marketers at Zoom, Okta, and ThoughtSpot use Metadata to automate the time-consuming parts of running paid campaigns so they can focus on the things that matter.